And welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Iftedecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by returning guest Tracy Tanoff to discuss 2021 novel Matrix by Lauren Groff. So Tracy, welcome. Hi. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself for those who have not heard your previous episodes, as well as why you wanted to talk about this particular book. I am a, I'm I'm not a medieval historian like Sarah, I'm just a listener of this podcast, but um, I am a 30-something queer woman, and that was a big factor in why I wanted to talk about this book. I don't remember anymore how I heard about it. I do follow a lot of resources for, you know, queer books and things. This came up as, you know, historical fiction, it was being highly acclaimed, you know, it was, Mm -hmm. like you are going to say in a little bit, you know, was one of the, like, best books of the year, like Barack Obama like put it on his mm-hmm. year-end list of like 2021 so I was hearing a lot about it and it just sounded oh Dolce <laughs> Dolce and, is um, helping yeah <laughs> and it just sounded you know really interesting especially you know I'm always especially interested in you know historical fiction from a woman's perspective that just made me really want to you know talk about it so I like remember as soon as it came out in paperback I messaged you I'm like so can we talk about this book please <laughs> Yeah, so so this came out in 2021. Uh, It's Groff's fourth novel. It got rave reviews. It was shortlisted for the 2021 National Book Award for Fiction and the 2022 Andrew Carnegie. I think I wrote Medieval, uh, but I meant Metal for Excellence (laughs) in Fiction. (laughs) Apparently, I'm just adding in Medieval everywhere. And yeah, like Barack Obama is like, this is one of my favorite books. It was on the Washington Post's 10 Best Books of 2021. And I actually did read it in 2021. And I will say I I don't know why I rushed to read it, actually, because I <laughs> am often, as one can perhaps guess from this podcast, um, hesitant in terms of whether I am actually excited about fiction and films set in the Middle Ages. Like, I'm excited about them sometimes for the purposes of this podcast, but I usually don't necessarily expect that they'll be good yeah um or that I personally won't be annoyed by them (laughs) um and this is one where I will say as like a slight spoiler for my thoughts that I have some critiques as a medievalist but I really actually did enjoy this book like I I think Mm -hmm. I actually did kind of put it down as like one of my like top five favorite books that I read in 2021 you know, my my list, which is obviously equivalent in importance to Barack Obama's list. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I, you know, I'm excited to get a chance to uh, to talk about it and also kind of put some of my thoughts together on some of the, uh, the medievalism aspects. Yeah, and this was a historical figure that I really wasn't familiar with at all. So mm-hmm. like, that's always like another thing that's really appealing about, you know, books like this is I was like, oh, I get to learn something, you know, whether that's yeah. like true or not about someone I hadn't really heard of before. Yeah, and I have found it really interesting that I feel like we're getting more and more historical novels that are about women who are somewhat like off the beaten path, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that like there I think I just saw that there is a novel about this like mystic who was accused of heresy Marguerite Porette uh that there's a new historical novel about her 
and, and you know, end this. And so like, it's, it's interesting that we're getting these people, we're getting more of these novels, it seems like about historical figures who aren't Eleanor of Aquitaine, who does feature in this book, but it's not the central character. And there's like been a, a trend in biopics more like the last few years where directors and writers are more willing to interpret historical figures as queer in a way that they mm-hmm. wouldn't have been in the past, whether or yeah. not that's a popular decision. There was the movie Ammonite with Kate Wilson, uh, Kate, Kate Wilson, wow, Kate Winslet and Tirsa Ronan, where they interpreted Mary Anning, the um, English fossil collector, as a lesbian. And I know in the Tolkien biopic, they interpreted a friend of Tolkien's mm-hmm. as queer. And we don't necessarily know that either of these people were, but both of the filmmakers, particularly the Tolkien filmmakers, said, you know, we read all of the surviving papers. You know, we don't know for sure, but we feel it was a very strong likelihood. So, like, they sort of made that, like, the subtext of mm-hmm. the movie. And I thought that was so interesting. And it's, yeah. you know, it's not a choice that's very popular in certain circles, right. but it's one that people are becoming more comfortable with. And it was not popular with this particular novel, if you look at some of the reviews. Right. But, <laughs> so, but it's definitely, like, a choice that Groff made, and I thought it was really interesting. Enumeratio. Yeah, and so so this is a kind of good lead into the uh, the enumeratio or recap section mm-hmm. uh, where we kind of actually actually talk about the book, and this is also I guess it's like lead into what I'll kind of get into in more detail in the segments where I talk about more of the kind of historical background, but. The woman who is at the center of this book, Marie de France, we actually know essentially nothing about her. Mm-hmm. As as historians, that uh, we we have these works of literature that are author, authored by this person who's referred to as uh, Marie de France. And we have assumptions that we make about her and her background, which essentially come out of what her works of literature are like. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it's basically that there's like six different people named Marie that, which is like a very common name yeah. in like 12th cent in like 12th century England. And they're like, oh, maybe it's her. <laughs> and there's somebody who they kind of picked, uh, who also, and I'll talk about that more too later, who is like the Marie de France in this particular novel, which, which is fine. I mean, it's a novel, you can pick whoever you want. But that also, I think, because, like, we we don't know that much about that person either, actually, in some ways. And so, like, it actually gives you a lot of flexibility. And so, as far as I can tell, I'm not sure there's any particular strong evidence that this person was queer. But also, like, I don't know. Why not? Yeah. I mean, good a possibility as any. (laughs) I think, like, especially if you're setting it in an environment, you know, like, you know, a nunnery and someplace Mm -hmm. where, like, all the characters are going to be women you know, I think that she makes a good case for, you know, how this would happen and why it would be, you know, yeah. the way that it is. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll be talking kind of more about uh, about that as well in terms of like the fact that this is, I think, a like historically plausible decision in a mm. number of ways. And I think this is something that like our our sources are not not non-existent, but relatively thin. But there's enough there that to me it seems just absolutely 100% obvious that there are absolutely like queer relationships happening in the context of women's monasteries and men's monasteries for that matter. Yeah. 
So we have Marie de France, who here is represented as being the illegitimate daughter of Geoffrey d'Anjou, and in particular is um, is a product of sexual assault. And uh, she ends up getting sent to England and there and in England is specifically sent to the court of her half-brother, Henry II. She meets well, she'd actually like first briefly met Eleanor of Aquitaine mm-hmm. when she was on crusade. She like goes on crusade with uh, with her mother and her aunts. And this this the story I was gonna say. I feel like I'm like slightly. It's like it's hard to begin in some ways because I feel like especially at the beginning there's sort of a lot of back and forth and it's not yeah. necessarily very like linear. It's also very, there's no, like, dialogue as such. It's, like, all, you know, in, like, descriptive, which, like, sometimes makes it hard to, like, hold the plot in my head because it's just, like, paragraph after paragraph. And, like, it's very well written, but it's very different than what you would expect of, like, a novel as we think of them. Yeah. So she has this encounter with uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine uh, on on crusade while Eleanor is the wife of King Louis VII of France. And uh, then comes into contact with her more more extensively uh, when she is sent to England, at which point Eleanor is the wife of Henry II of England. And has this unrequited uh, romantic sexual attraction to her, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting, especially because I feel like there are so many young women, myself included, when I was like a young woman being interested in history who find Eleanor extremely compelling as this real life, but kind of larger than life figure. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there is kind of a, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, obviously, but like as somebody who also like is a queer woman, like I feel like there is a kind of queerness to that potentially, at least this kind of fascination with this historical figure who like seems just like so fascinating and even like not actually really knowing what, she looks like exactly just seems like sexy just like as a person yeah i i know that the first time i heard of eleanor of aquitaine was there's an adaptation i i think it's in the adaptation of vanity fair with reese witherspoon and eleanor of aquitaine is mentioned and i had never heard of her before and it's like you know she talks about like eleanor of aquitaine like riding into battle and i remember that the first time i heard about her i was like oh like i want to learn more about her like that seems really interesting and it's like yeah definitely like one of the and you know something that's often talked about with queer woman is you know you have this feeling of you know do I want to be with them or do I want to be like them and it's like this is definitely like something that that sort of like read like that there's just this you know Marie has sort of this this compulsion to you know know more about her and to spend time with her and has these feelings that she really doesn't know how to reconcile and is you know Mm -hmm. wrestling with them for the rest of the story like throughout her you know her life into like her 60s and her 70s yeah, and I and as I said, I like I thought that was so so interesting, especially because like it's a phenomenon in general, and I think as I said that I think there are like so many ways in which this is like a phenomenon that like modern women have reading mm-hmm. about Eleanor. And so like the fact that she is the person upon whom Maria's kind of focused these desires, I think uh just like really, really kind of tracked for me. Mm-hmm. Eleanor is a uh, is not <laughs> so excited about her. <laughs> um <laughs> Sadly, <laughs> Eleanor, Eleanor is kind of trying to figure out what to do with her. And uh, the text, I think also, this is actually something I liked as well, that the text emphasizes constantly that Marie is not a stereotypically attractive woman. Mm-hmm. There's a 
part towards the end of the novel where um Marie and Cecily, who's her um like servant that's also her lover that you know she has at the mm-hmm. beginning of her life and then towards the end of her life where they're having this discussion and Cecily basically says like it's the fact that you weren't beautiful like that was the making of you mm-hmm. and you know she basically says if you had been beautiful like you would have been married off like you probably would have had children and then like died in childbirth and like only your daughters would have remembered you whereas you know, because she wasn't beautiful and because she was sent, you know, to be a nun and to be a prioress that like, you know, this became her legacy in a way that she wouldn't have mm-hmm. had if she had been like a beautiful woman. And I know that people like definitely have, you know, feelings about the way that female beauty is, you know, spoken about in these texts and the way that, you know, yeah. characters that aren't conventionally attractive is talked about. But I thought it was a very interesting, you know, point for the text to make to say that, you know, that it her life was essentially different because she wasn't conventionally attractive in that way. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting as well. And I think probably the result, the actual the kind of actuality is certainly more complicated. Like, I think it is very possible that even if she was not attractive, like that if the King of England had really want somebody had really wanted somebody to marry his illegitimate half sister, mm-hmm. somebody probably would have married her. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there is that kind of interesting element that you know, that this is kind of part of what sort of goes into into people's possible futures. And and I guess I also just like that we actually like that we have a heroine who's not described as pretty mm-hmm. that I feel like that's just like so, so rare in a lot of ways still that the like women that we are supposed to, you know, admire and read about and like that we infant focus on that they are not like extremely stereotypically attractive. Yeah, and there's really, as far as I can tell, you know, and thinking back on it now, there's really almost no men represented in the novel at all. So it's like, yeah. we're not even like getting Marie from a, a male gaze. We're really only hearing about her as women speak of her. And there's a lot of, you know, other than her looks, there's a lot of talk about her being a product of rape and it, you know, mm-hmm. the circumstances of her birth really define how people see her and speak about her yeah. and and speak about her mother because there's a, you know, a whole section that, you know, where they're talking about, you know, if her mother had simply like run quicker, you know, this wouldn't have happened. And, you know, right. and it just like defines how people think about her mother too. So it was just really mm-hmm. interesting to have a novel that was so like insularly focused on women and women's communities and how like women interact with each other as opposed to you know men especially since most you know medieval pop culture is so focused on men yes (laughs) yes as i as i've complained many times in this (laughs) podcast and this is such a cool counter to that in that there there really are arguably i think no male characters yeah and, you know, th- there is a male presence every so often, like there's a number of times where, you know, some of the nuns get pregnant or are clearly, mm-hmm. you know, having sexual relations or there are like villagers that have problems with them. But you, there are really no significant male presences in the work, which is really interesting. Yeah. And that men are sort of like a vague threat rather than a character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That there's the kind of like, oh, like there are these villagers who are going to attack us. Like this is actually like this is actually also sort of true. Like I'm not even sure if they use uh, Jeffrey or Henry's names. Yeah, I they mentioned the Plantagenets the at one point, but I don't really think the first names come into it much. 
Yes, they have this family name, but they don't actually, I'm, you know, I I can't 100% promise that I'm right about this, but Mm -hmm. I, this is my gut feeling is that certainly I don't think Jeffrey has ever mentioned my name, Mm -hmm. because I remember at some point trying to like work out the math and figure out actually who (laughs) her father was supposed to be. I was Mm -hmm. like, wait, is her father supposed to be Jeffrey or Henry? And I'm like, all right, I got it. Um, Yeah, and that, and like, I think also, like, we, you know, we sort of like touch on like their, like, their sons, and I'm not sure they're actually mentioned by name either, Richard and John, who are then kings of England. Yeah, I think it's you, I think you mostly just hear the names of the daughters and, you know, the the sons are referred to in like, you know, the oldest or like the favorite, but I can't say that their names ever get mentioned beyond like maybe once or twice. Yeah, I, I, I think John is, in fact, just like the least favorite, um, <laughs> which is hilarious. I mean, and, and true, but um, but also hilarious. Uh, I found that really cool that all the people who are actually like meaningful characters and like, again, like, as you mentioned earlier, there's there's not really dialogue. Mm-hmm. So this doesn't totally make sense but to the extent that there's at least kind of like reference to dialogue happening Mm -hmm. i'm not sure there's any men who speak yeah i don't think so either yeah this is definitely like the book of the if decker test (laughs) yeah it is (laughs) this book like aggressively passes the if decker test it like aggressively passes the bechdel test it's like fantastic it like doesn't it like doesn't pass the reverse in fact no it doesn't (laughs) It's great goals. So she ends up at this abbey, which uh, as when it's when she first gets there, the emphasis is very much on how this particular abbey is impoverished. Mm-hmm. Like the nuns keep dying. <laughs> uh, they're starving and they have no money. Just like nothing is going very well. There's all these like horrible descriptions of like illness and like starvation. <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah and they're like which are like very very intense and then like it also just seems like just in terms of how things are going at the abbey there's uh this like this like nun goda who really seems like she like likes animals significantly more than people Mm -hmm. which i mean fair relatable but (laughs) uh but also like does not seem like she's like that invested in some ways in like the community Mm We have this abbess at the time, uh, M, who is, like, kind of seems like she's sort of losing it. Yeah. She's the one that's always singing, right? Yeah, there's, I, I think yeah. so. Yeah. She's older. She's... <laughs> doesn't of, doesn't really seem like she's got kind of a firm grasp on things. Sort of like the, uh, if you watch Call the Midwife, the uh, Sister Monica Joan of the situation. <laughs> I don't, although I've heard that I should. Yeah. But. The Abbey is like in severe disarray. Mm-hmm. So this is where Marie comes into. And so initially she's like, basically like, I have no vocation. We do have it in one of the things that I do have a little bit of a kind of quibble about. We have the sort of move that is made in a lot of things set in the Middle Ages, where in order for somebody to be relatable as a person in the middle ages they have to be just like a little bit of an atheist yeah (laughs) and that marie at the outset at least is like i'm not really into this whole like god and church (laughs) thing (laughs) so you know not not that there aren't like nuns who don't have the education but i feel like the like 
level of like to some like pseudo atheism that she has initially is a little like or is like a little tropey in a way that I don't love. It's always like every protagonist in these things. Like I know there's also like the like the modern feminist in like you know different mm-hmm. time periods. Like it's the same thing. It's like it's what all of these yeah. things tend to do. So it definitely becomes something that wears on you after a while. <laughs> right. Exactly. So like you know, but you know, does not want to be a nun, which is. Mm-hmm. You know, fair. Plenty of people don't want to be nuns for various reasons. Yeah, she's very resentful of the fact that she has to be in this abbey. And when it gets into her writing the poems, there's a lot of talk about you know she writes these poems, you know, partly representing all these women that were sent to the abbey because they were somehow deemed like un- undesirable, whether they were unattractive or they had something like a physical disability or you know some other thing that you know made their families want to send them to the abbey so like there's a lot of talk Mm -hmm. about that and the various reasons why that comes to pass right yeah and so the sort of trying to to kind of access these uh these people with these experiences and that uh she also you know she it's presented as you know she kind of writes this uh these lays these kind of narrative poems and uh has them sent to eleanor and it seems like her kind of initial goal is basically like she's going to be so impressed with me with me that she's going to be like your talents are wasted in this abbey please come and hang out at my cool court (laughs) instead And shortly after that, Marie's falcon is slain by a lady hawk, which is sort of like, you know, symbolic of Eleanor's like yeah. total indifference to this situation. <laughs> yeah, she she's like, she's got her own shit that she is doing. And like, Marie is just not a part of that. Yeah. She's clearly like, Eleanor looms much larger in her life than vice versa. Mm-hmm. Very clearly. Which I think a lot of women particularly have been through that experience of the, yes. the friend yes. that you have that you think that your relationship is probably a little more than it is. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, that's that's the kind of initial dynamic. She begins to focus essentially on improving the Abbey and kind of bringing it out of its impoverished state, which also initially is something that is basically an alternative way to uh, to kind of attract Eleanor's attention. Mm-hmm. Maybe if I, again, like demonstrate my skills that I have all of these really impressive administrative skills <laughs> that this too will demonstrate again, like I, I am wasted at this like stupid abbey in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And she really becomes, you know, invested in this community that she has at the abbey because it's sort of established that she's been through depression and suicidal Mm -hmm. ideation before when her mother passed away and she ran her mother's estate for a while with Cecily, that one I mentioned who was her servant and her lover. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they sort of like ran things together before it became clear that that wasn't sustainable. But there's a line I have written down where it says Marie would never want to live through that desert of her soul again. She is not built to thrive without others. So she Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, realizes that this community is valuable to her and it sort of staves off this like deep depression that she's feeling about Eleanor being indifferent to her and, you know, having Mm -hmm. to give up everything that she knows. And I thought that that was really powerful in a lot of ways. Yeah, I really liked that aspect of things. And I think that's something that often doesn't get emphasized enough in, I mean, first of all, I feel like there aren't that many stories that center on women's communities Mm -hmm. and on women's relationships with other women. I mean, I feel like that's just not stories that get told that often in general. But I really like that even though there are 
aspects of, you know, conflict that she has with other people, which makes sense, right? Like you're living with a lot of people Mm -hmm. that the kind of community, that the community, that the meaningful, you know, positive relationships that she develops that like this matters and uh, this, you know, makes this place home, whether or not it's kind of what she had in mind for herself in the first place or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I thought that was actually really lovely. And I really like that she's like good at things. Yeah. I really, I really always enjoy like a competent, uh, a competent woman. Yeah, I, I think about this a lot because friends and fellow podcasters, um, Helen and Valerie, they have the Falling in Love Montage podcast, which is about you know chick flicks, and one of the tropes mm-hmm. that they often talk about that's really difficult to stomach, especially now in these rom coms, is woman makes a fool of herself at work, and like yes. it, it's like such a common thing, like not just in chick flicks, but just in like everything. And it's just, like, Mm -hmm. ever since they pointed it out, like, that's always in the back of my mind. So whenever I get something where, like, a woman is really allowed to be, you know, competent and not have, you know, that scenario thrust upon them. And this book is, like, the embodiment of, like, the really competent woman trope. And not just Marie, but all of the women that she surrounds herself with, including um, one of my favorite characters was uh, Wolfhild, who becomes, like, Mm -hmm. the woman, like, uh, like, bailiff of the Abbey. And, you know, the the authority that she gets to have her and her daughters like was really fascinating yeah and i mean and i also like related to that that one of marie's skills is uh is a kind of that she's like the manager par excellence that Mm -hmm. she is also very good at assessing other people's skills yeah and at then putting them in the position where they get to use those skills. And so, you know, which like improves overall productivity. Yeah, um. she specifically makes the change of previously the system had been that each nun does the work that she's the worst at, you know, to sort of like teach them like a basement. And she switches it to the opposite that each nun gets to do the things that they're actually good at. And that sort of like right. the productivity. And there's a specific line where they said that she's never been convinced by any argument for a basement. She's like, why do they have to suffer? Like, why can't they just do what they're good at? Like, it makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Like, it's more efficient. And I thought that that was really yeah. interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and it is kind of interesting in terms of like sort of the fundamental kind of tension in some way about what is the purpose of monastic life. Yeah. Right. I mean, part of it is like, I mean, so right, it's this kind of spiritual devotion. And in part, there's a sense, right, okay, this requires this humility. This requires this sort of, you know, according to, you know, some people, right, they could even, you know, make the argument that it requires a sort of, that it does require a sort of extreme abasement and Mm self-denial. But that on the other hand, At the same time, there's an idea that, well, monastic life is fundamentally about having this focus on prayer, which means that you need to be kind of stable enough to be able to concentrate on that and get that work done. Mm -hmm. And that especially in the context of an order of women, where they don't want the women to be going out and begging. Yeah. Which is something that, you know, eventually we will have male orders where, in fact, the expectation is that they are going out and begging. But they never really want women to do something like that. That this, like, stability and not starving is also kind of the purpose of monastic life. I mean, self-sufficiency is a purpose of monastic life. Yeah, I I was just reading something recently that it was words from a rabbi and it was speaking, you know, specifically, I forget if it was about pre- preparations for Passover or Rosh Hashanah, but it was, you know, it was a rabbi basically saying that, you know, 
how much work it is to prepare your home, you know, like, and make sure that the kitchen is kosher and everything. And he basically, mm-hmm. like, said it without quite saying it that, like, his wife and the women in his family are doing all the work. And, you know, like, he sort of keeps himself away from uh-huh. that. And I know that this has come up frequently in, you know, criticisms about Judaism in particular is that, like, the women do all of the work so, like, the men can study the Torah and, you know, have these religious studies. Right. And, like, it's something that a lot of people, especially now, are, like, pushing back against. And this is mm-hmm. sort of, like, a companion to that in a way, I feel. Yeah, and, and that is actually, I think, one of the, the sort of interesting things about about monasteries that, you know, are creating these, uh, you know, single-sex spaces is that what this also, therefore, means is that it kind of challenges some of those gender dynamics in some ways mm-hmm. that it's not that like the men are praying and studying and doing intellectual labor and the women are cooking and cleaning mm-hmm. in a woman's monastery, like in, in each of these, you know, single sex monasteries, it's like the women are doing all of these things. The men are doing all of these things. Mm-hmm. So like monks have to, you know, prepare food and clean. Yeah. Because, like, you don't want a bunch of women running around. Uh, <laughs> and, like, in a woman's monastery, like, women are, you know, studying and copying books and doing manual labor because you don't want a bunch of men around. Yeah, and it later becomes a point of conflict that Marie takes to presiding over mass and confession, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, several of the nuns, you know, really take to, but there are other, you know, like older, more traditional nuns that are very much not happy about this development and, you know, almost sort of, you know, go to different authorities about it before they ultimately decide that, like, they can't, like, right. you know, speak about this. But... Yeah, and that's interesting, which is interesting, because like, that's the that's the one, the one, the kind of the biggest space in which the sort of single sex, uh, you know, split breaks down is that the expectation is always that like, well, there are certain things that only a male priest is able to do. Mm-hmm. But this is something that raises a lot of concerns and anxieties. We know for a fact that it is a problem, in fact, that first of all, that these priests are like, sometimes not being quite so chaste yeah. with nuns who are also being not uh, not quite so chaste as they are supposed to be. Yeah. One of the most heartbreaking scenes of the book is that because she becomes this, you know, female figure that's offering them the chance mm-hmm. to take confession is so many of the, you know, the, the young novitiates have these stories about sexual assault. And, yeah. you know, they come to her and there's even, you know, one who murders i believe her brother-in-law because she Mm -hmm. knew that you know on her like sister's wedding night that this man was going to come for her and she stabbed him and you know she and this becomes you know a point later where the there's another point where there's like murder of men is going to come into play and like marie basically says something about it and the wolf hills daughters are like well then it's good that you're our confessor like you know it's kind of right they can sort of like and she specifically knows you know as these young women are confessing to her about sexual assault that they are she is only really being told this because she is a woman and because she is a safe place for these women to go and that's like it's it's so devastating and it's so you know it's such a problem that we're still facing today and i thought that that was really like well captured 
Yeah, I did too. And it was something that was that I found really heartbreaking. I mean, but but also actually like really relatable. I mean, I like as an educator, like I absolutely have had women tell me about their experiences having been sexually assaulted. I mean, nobody's like confessed to murder to me or mm-hmm. anything like that. But um, that, you know, that people have, you know, have talked about experiences being sexually assaulted and in ways where like, it's, you know, it's because I'm a woman authority, you know, like, Mm -hmm. trusted authority figure, when often they're in spaces where a lot of their professors, you know, in a college setting are men. And, you know, they are less comfortable talking to them. And as like, and as a woman, and especially a woman who often like, brings up topics, uh, you know, in a classroom setting related to sexual assault, because it comes up a lot when you're teaching medieval history, and Mm -hmm. comes up a lot when you're teaching the Bible. Yeah, um, which is a whole (laughs) dynamic yeah but uh yeah so that you know this i yeah so i found this like really really upsetting but also very relatable so the other thing i will say that i really liked is that marie is is hyper competent but that she also is not perfect Mm -hmm. and in particular that we we kind of do have this that she is she is extremely ambitious which is something that on the one hand is a quality that can be admired and that I liked. But on the other hand, it is kind of clear that sometimes because of her ambition, she sort of like runs roughshod over other people. Yeah, she will absolutely, you know, not brook anyone saying no to her. And, you know, there's sort of a focus in several of these scenes that each time she proposes these new projects that people then oppose, like she just has like the perfect way to like break down the negotiations into such a sense that she will get her way. Yeah. And she uses these visions that she claims to have, you know, to justify, you know, making these changes. And um, later, her successor, you know, when she reads these books where she writes on the visions, even her successor sort of thinks to herself that she was never really sure whether to believe that these visions are legitimate mm-hmm. or whether it was just her way of saying, you know, I would like this thing done and you sort of can't like argue with me because I'm telling you about uh-huh. this vision that I had. <laughs> so, <laughs> And I actually really liked that. I think that's kind of true for us as the reader too, that mm-hmm. I think the, the question of whether she's really having visions is sort of narratively complicated. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're in Marie's head essentially, right? For mm-hmm. the, entirety of the text i i think we are supposed to believe that marie believes that she is having visions definitely yeah but i think there is a kind of complicated question of how much of that is a sort of way that she is justifying to herself what she is doing yeah there's definitely like yeah there's like definitely a sense that she is like preternatural in some ways like there are several occasions where she knows that you know someone has died or that someone Mm -hmm. is ill and that she has like intelligence that she shouldn't necessarily have so like that's there but I felt the visions were more you know ambiguous and especially Mm -hmm. because she's presented as so ambitious and that she's using these to sort of further her own ends rather than you know something more noble I suppose (laughs) right well also I do think that then that's complicated too right I mean what is her own ends and her own ambition and what is a noble goal of protecting the Abbey and the women who are in her care. Yeah, especially because it it truly does, you know, 
better the lives of you know the nuns in her care as well as the surrounding people like there are frequent mentions of the you know the townspeople that come to them for alms and it gets to the point where like the abbey is so wealthy that like the things they're giving to the poor are better than what the people that actually like live and work in the town can afford themselves that they say like it's almost like not fair because that's become the case and i thought that that was really interesting That was basically the first time I'd ever seen a dynamic like that play out in something like this. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, it was it was interesting the way that that went. Yeah, no, I thought that was really interesting, too. And I thought it also was so interesting in terms of thinking about the the Abbey having this really complicated relationship with the people around them, mm-hmm. that on the one hand, there are ways in which like it is a positive relationship and in which they are kind of bettering things for this kind of village as a whole. But there's also that resentment that's coming out. Mm-hmm. There's also ways in which like the Abbey is in like this gets like, you know, we get it from Marie's perspective, but like the Abbey is a predatory landlord essentially yeah there's a point where they're even outright attacked over it and you know Mm -hmm. have to like strike back against that which was pretty interesting yeah and so that you have this kind of sense right that on the on the one hand that there is this kind of symbiotic relationship and connection but on the other hand there are these real resentments that people have Mm -hmm. yeah and i thought that dynamic was really fascinating and yeah that you know they're there are definitely, you know, these these ways in which, like, her, her ambition is self-serving, but also ways in which, like, well, I mean, but does it maybe kind of help? The labyrinth is in some ways the kind of most complicated yeah. in that regard. Because it, I mean, it visually sounds really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I kind like, I, I, I wish this was a real thing because I want to, like, go and look at it. Um <laughs> I thought like so it was interesting in that regard, but it is something that does like isolate the nuns from this community, mm-hmm. which seems kind of like counter to you know their responsibilities to the community around them. Yeah, like there are several mentions of you know when people come to the abbey, like they'll have to be blindfolded as they're you know led through the labyrinth, and there's you know at one point a nun who you know, steals from them and, you know, tries leaving the abbey, the abbey, but later they find, like, her body in the labyrinth, yeah. like, you know, and it's, it's just very, yeah, I, like, I, I sort of didn't know how I feel about it, and I, and I looked, you know, and saw that, you know, you wrote further in the notes that there's really nothing to, like, back this up that it actually happened in yeah. history, but no. it was, no, you know, there is not. <laughs> narratively, I understand why it was there, and there's, you know, mentions um, throughout the text of her, you know, Marie eventually coming to feel that she needs to sort of create like an island of women, you know, in a community that's sort of like totally away from men. But yeah, I'm not sure that this would have happened in real life the way that it's presented here. (laughs) Right. No, I don't think it would. But it does also speak to the way in which like in this novel, again, like men, men aren't characters, they're a vague amorphous threat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And so there is this, like, well, we have to, like, keep out the men in a way that I think actually wouldn't wouldn't work in some ways in a novel. I mean, I can't believe I'm, like, sitting here, like, I don't know, defending men. But, like, in a novel, <laughs> there are actually, like, men who are complicated <laughs> characters. Oh, my God. I... <laughs> I mean, you know, the same way that, like, often there are novels and movies where, like, there are no complicated women characters, you know, I mean, you know, not complaining that, like, we have the reverse for once. Yeah. But, like, that I think, like, in a novel where there were complicated male characters, some of whom are people who are likable, 
I feel like this wouldn't work in some ways. Yeah. And even, like, the men who, as far as we know, are nice enough, just, like, fundamentally just, like, do not matter. Like, Wolfhild, like, <laughs> marries somebody for love. And the only time that really comes up is that she's, like, a little annoyed that she, like, got married and, like, ditched. But, you know, then, like, makes her this bailiff and, you know, gives her this position yeah. that both empowers her and keeps her connected to the Abbey. And as far as I know, he has no name and, like, Almost the only time we hear about him is this really, like, tossed-off description of his death. And it's like, yeah, there was, like, a bird's nest and a rickety ladder and he died. And I was like, wow. (laughs) And the main relevance that his death has for Marie is that it's, like, right after Eleanor's death. And she's like, I'm glad we're having similar experiences. Which also, I mean, speaking of how, like, Marie is not perfect is, like, that is, like, a wild thing to say (laughs) in terms of both making it all about her, that this poor woman's husband has died, and that, like, her relationship with her husband is, like, not the same as your relationship with Eleanor, because, like, this person actually seems like, like, they have a relationship. Yeah, I was going to say her her relationship quote unquote with Eleanor <laughs> yeah exactly like Wolfhild's relationship with nameless husband like that exists um in a way that like Marie's relationship with Eleanor does not like and so she's like oh I'm glad somebody knows how I feel like well <laughs> do they <laughs> do they um like I mean maybe but do you know how they feel like and the answer is like almost certainly not but that's also not kind of what she's that invested in in some ways like she is quite self-centered in a lot of ways (laughs) um so I mean you know having having ambitious self-centered like slightly bullying women like I mean that's representation (laughs) that's what we need (laughs) more mean women (laughs) So while she's also kind of becoming part of this community, uh, there's also a number of these kinds of references uh, to these sexual relationships that she has with other nuns. And one of the things that I think is really interesting with Marie is that as prioress and then abbess, she very much holds herself to the rule that she is not because of her position, especially because of her position of power, that she is not supposed to have any special friendships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she has a relationship with the infirmatrix of the Abbey Nest. There's also another woman named Elgiva. And then, as I mentioned, there's uh, her servant, Cecily, who, you know, mm-hmm. leaves earlier in the novel and then comes back when they're older women. And, you know, so she has several of these relationships throughout her life. And I was sort of glad that it made it, you know, more than one person rather than just, mm-hmm. you know, one particular relationship. And it you know, you see how it furthers her relationships with these women, but it, there was also sort of entwined with this is there's a lot of frankness about cisgender women's bodies and particularly, yeah. you know, aging and menopause and sexual desire mm-hmm. that I found so interesting because especially with older women, we so rarely see that in fiction. Yeah. And especially in the climate we're in now, where a lot of books are being banned for speaking about the body mm-hmm. in a very frank way, like there's multiple references to to masturbation that's um part yeah. of why she goes to uh the infirmatrix in the first place is that the infirmatrix implies that she does this for basically several women and you know yeah. that it's like very common for her to do this to the other nuns and i was like oh i don't know that i've really read something before especially mm-hmm. in a historical setting that has been this frank about it and it was very interesting yeah to read. 
And it's very frank. And she also even expresses it in this, like these almost kind of like clinical medical terms. And I found it interesting that that's like one of the ways that, uh, that Marie actually kind of justifies this relationship is the fact that like, well, it's not, I actually don't have this special relationship. This is like a service that she provides (laughs) as infirmatrix. Yeah. Ness really Uh, specifically couches it in like medicinal terms. So they're like, oh, it's not sinful. It's medicine. And I was like, oh, that's that's a way to go about it. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, you know, however you want to figure out how to justify, (laughs) you know, go for it. But yeah, and because then like Elgiva, she's like, well, like they have this like one, um, they have this like one encounter and sleep together. And then Elgiva's like, you can find me churning butter at this time. <laughs> and, <laughs> and she's like, well, I'm not going to do that again, because I know I'm not supposed to have like a special relationship with one person. Yeah. And the exception to that is Cecily. But there's also, I think, some amount of a like, well, it's it's kind of kind of the end of my days yeah and... it's sort of like mentioned when cecily later comes to the abbey and then like is installed in her room that like everyone just kind of accepts that this is like the way it's going to be now and it's definitely that you yep. know cecily is there for the last maybe like four or five years of her life it's not really yeah. like you know when you consider that she had been there you know from when she was very young to when she was in her 70s it's like a almost like a blip in the radar like it's nothing yeah so that I think is uh, was also was also interesting and like kind of sweet actually that she had the that like it's not that she's like in love with her but that she is like very close friends with her certainly and that they had this you know romantic these like romantic and sexual ties yeah. and so it's like not exactly like this is my great lost love who I've been like pining for mm-hmm. for the last forty years but that like they have a connection that is meaningful and now like get to like and like now she gets to be comforted by that in the last years of her life. Yeah. I I really appreciated the way that the text dealt with like menopause and you know particularly mm-hmm. like hot flashes and <laughs> yeah. the, just in general like menstruation is called the curse of Eve and I was like oh like I'm like adopting that immediately. I was like that's like the best way to refer to it that I've ever heard of. <laughs> I, by the way, um, absolutely was, uh, I've, I've been like having to discuss menstruation a lot because, uh, I'm like teaching various gender related courses this year. And, uh, one of, and, and I'm also being, uh, being observed this mm-hmm. academic year as, uh, as part of the review process. Mm-hmm. And like most of that is happening in the next few weeks. And I was like, well, I'm just simply not going to um, have as one of the dates available to be observed. I'm just simply not having the day that we are like doing menstruation <laughs> because I absolutely refuse to have like a group of people who are uh, mostly men <laughs> just like show up in this class and be like, all right, kids, like you want to like these men are here to listen to you talk about menstruation. <laughs> um <laughs> But, but, you know, I mean, but related to that, right, that, like, I think uh, I've often even found, like, teaching that there is some amount of, like, squeamishness that some of my students have about, like, talking about menstruation in an academic setting. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is because, like, there's not a lot that they get to read or watch or see that is really, like, frank about yeah. menstruation and the menstruating body and, like, the ways in which your body is changing, like, 
with that and then like in menopause. And so yeah, I think like more things that do that are really valuable. Yeah, this really is very, you know, candid about menstruation about, you know, like bodily functions in general in a way that you're really not used to seeing in fiction, because so much of fiction just like entirely avoids that topic that it was like, oh, like Mm -hmm. someone really like got out there and just like wrote it down. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I really like that. The one other thing to note is that there, uh, like she has, we mentioned that she has these visions. And uh, so the book like goes through her death, but then actually continues after Mm -hmm. and uh, includes the detail that her successor uh, burns the manuscript of her visions. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's always a really interesting way that, you know, these books sort of get around, you know, sort of justifying the liberties that they take, you know, in telling right? these stories, because this is, I'm, I'm also quite a big fan of Jane Austen. And the mm-hmm. thing about Jane Austen is that her sister burned so many of her letters. So, you right. know, we have what survives, but we don't know what didn't. And it's so, Mm -hmm. it's used so frequently, you know, it's used to sort of cover, you know, what we don't know about her love life. It's been said that, Mm -hmm. you know, things that were censored were actually references to like bodily functions to, you know, things that were considered like indiscreet, maybe about like neighbors or like people in their Mm -hmm. lives. And, you know, because there's so much that could have been in those letters, you know, people just have such free reign to imagine you know, things that we might not know. So I always find that really fascinating when someone really takes that gray space and is like, no, like, this is what Mm -hmm. could have happened. And like, you can't really say that it didn't because we don't know for sure. (laughs) Right. And like, there is like that aspect of things, right? I mean, and you know, and like, like with letters, like with like a manuscript culture, you know, if the idea is like, you created one manuscript version of your visions, you didn't have them copied. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I mean... Yeah, that that's that's possible. Sure, <laughs> who who knows what like who knows what we've lost in this kind of context. Yeah. So, but also I think a kind of like interesting in the I don't know our own moment where I feel like we're talking a lot about like censorship mm-hmm. of books and uh, you know attempts to you know to prevent people from you know reading certain kinds of books, and particularly with you know the digital age, you know it's like you almost can't have that same, you know, you burn it so it's lost forever anymore because yeah. things live on in the internet or because it's, you know, now it's so easy to have, you know, copies and it's just like nothing that really exists today can ever truly be gone. So it's sort of, you know, yeah. the sort of story that you can only really tell like in a past era. And that's so fascinating. But yeah, but that there is this like, I don't know, there's this kind of interesting uh, bit at the end where it even kind of like seems like it like it wonders what the other sort of possibilities could have been and so there's this like there's this passage that uh that i was trying to find that says that tilda that's her successor is not blessed with mystical sight she cannot see how much is lost in the burning Mm -hmm. the traces of a predecessor the visions that might have shown a different path for the next millennium the strong stock for a new graft gone I found that, like, there's this, like, effort almost to kind of imagine these things as, like, changing the world. Yeah. Which I found a little excessive. (laughs) Um, But I do think it's sort of, like, interesting 
not necessarily from the perspective of like realism, Mm -hmm. but from the perspective of sort of thinking about in our own age that even though it like it is true that like in the digital age, things aren't going to be gone forever in the same way that we are in this moment, maybe we're kind of thinking about more about about what could be lost and how society could be shaped by people at least being largely prevented from reading certain kinds of things, even if we're not entirely erasing them. Yeah. And I think like it speaks to so many other things that have happened in history. Like I know that there's there's always speculation about, you know, the fact that the Nazis burned so much, you know, queer literature and research mm-hmm. into transgender issues and the fact that we yeah. lost so many people to AIDS, you know, that it's like we have, you know, art and literature by the people that survived, but we'll never know what we could have had from the people that didn't. And, you yeah. know, and especially with this being the context of like a queer story and a story about women, you know, I, I definitely do agree that I found that passage kind of excessive, but it was also saying, you know, what could have changed if we had, you Mm -hmm. know, sort of firm proof of this lineage of a woman that, you know, did so much and had so much power that we, like, don't Mm -hmm. have, and thus, like, you know, we ended up with the patriarchy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right, and, uh, you know, and as as I'll talk about in a little bit, I mean, it is also the case, right, that, um, you know, while while these sources are not non-existent, the sources for, like, queer women's experiences in the Middle Ages, like, that's like there aren't a lot. Yeah. Especially given that I think there like there's a lot of emphasis on like the like the queer overtones of like the visions as well. Mm-hmm. That that's a kind of interesting and a kind of interesting piece to that too, I think. Yeah. So then unless there's anything else you wanted to add, I think we can uh move to the uh the Vera at Falso, where you talk about yeah. what the book uh, got right and wrong about <laughs> medieval history. So there are a lot of details. I'm definitely not going to discuss everything, <laughs> but bringing up a few things at least. So first of all, that the the novel does feature various real historical people and some vague references to real historical events. So Marie de France is a real person in that she is a poet. We know she wrote in French, but a version of French that probably has a kind of Anglo-Norman influence, and that she, you know, references Henry II and his court. So probably, and we think that based on this, that she's somebody who was born in France, lived in England, and was active about 1160 to 1215. This is not a lot to go on Mm -hmm. in terms of knowing actual information about a human. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so this is also like part of the you know like to some extent like part of the attraction or possibly i wonder at least of this figure as like the figure for a novel is that also you can kind of do what we what you want because we have no idea who this person is yeah like her name was marie she lived in the late 12th century in england and is probably french like there's at least like dozens, if not hundreds of people that that could <laughs> probably apply to. Um, even assuming that like Marie is her real name as opposed to a, like Marie de France is like her real name in some way as opposed to a pseudonym. Like, yeah. So of the various candidates that have been proposed for possibly who Marie de France was, one is uh, the Marie who is abbess of Shaftesbury, and this is somebody who we know is an illegitimate daughter of Geoffrey d'Anjou and half-sister of Henry II of England. 
I don't believe that we know that she would have been specifically a product of sexual assault rather than a consensual relationship of some kind, just that she was illegitimate. Um, so that also is an authorial choice. Yeah, I think it, it- it has like enough thematic relevance that it's yeah. like it's clear why she made that choice, especially with you know that later scene of you know all the young women coming to her to tell her about mm-hmm. those experiences that like, and it and it's so present in the way that you know people see her and talk about her that like mm-hmm. I think that it was like it was the clear choice to make. I feel. Yeah, I thought it really worked. I thought it worked for me as a choice, and also like it's something that she could do without there being like anything that was like particularly graphic necessarily. Like I thought, I actually thought like the book was like, does a quite good job of having sexual assault as something that is included as part of the reality, unfortunately of women's lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've, I've definitely read things where it's been like too gratuitous, whereas this was more like it's the background noise of their lives, but it's not necessarily gone into. Yeah. There's a point where it's, like, sort of noted that the women in this world sort of live and die by reputation. And Mm -hmm. the abbess, I believe, before Marie, was sort of, like, unmoved by the fact that the nuns were starving, but took action, like they say, took action to prevent, like, dark gossip. So, like, you know, the the (laughs) reputation is almost, like, more important than, like, the actuality of what's Mm -hmm. happening. So, and I feel that, like, making her a product of sexual assault sort of, like, fed into that. Yeah, and it's also, I think, an interesting way to do that in that it makes it thematically relevant without having to make it, like, her personal trauma. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, that I think it's in some ways like a very different book if we have, you know, and like not that you can't do a book like that and do it well, but I think it is a much like much more difficult in some ways, right, to have a book where then like that's a kind of central like element of her own life as opposed to it's a kind of indirect trauma in some way for her. I also believe that with presenting her as a lesbian, it would start feeling problematic in a way that a lot of people don't like if, like, you said, like, oh, she's only, like, gravitating towards women because of sexual trauma in her past, whereas, like, this is, like, she's a product of sexual trauma, but as far as we know, didn't experience it herself, and, like, it's just separate from her attractions to women. So I think that it was the the right choice to make to have it be sort of part of her background, but not something that's directly happening to her. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that that absolutely is the case. As I said, we don't really know anything else about (laughs) this person. We have at least these kind of like brief glimpses of these other figures who we know a lot more about. One, of course, is Eleanor, who I'm not going to talk about too much because I feel like I've talked about Eleanor of Aquitaine in depth like six times on this podcast already. (laughs) So like, I don't know, go back to the Lion Winter episode or something if you want to hear me talk about Eleanor. (laughs) But I will say a quick word about, so, uh, you know, we already mentioned, like, Jeffrey, who is, you know, her biological father, who is, like, not named, is not really a character, like, Henry, Eleanor's husband, who is also, like, not really a character. She does meet Jeffrey's wife, Matilda, in this, like, there's this, like, scene where, so the whole thing with her mother, right, that her mother dies, and she basically, like, she and Cecily are running the, like, when they're running the estate, they're kind of, like, pretending her mother isn't dead for, like, two years. <laughs> um, and then as they, like, it's, like, finally all this comes out, like, and she she ends up, like, basically, like, getting, like, shipped off to, like, her father. Mm-hmm. Which what actually means is that, like, her I mean, stepmother isn't really the right word exactly, but... yeah. 
you know, her, her like, her rapist biological father's wife mm-hmm. is like, yeah, what's, what's, you know, was like trying to figure out what to do with her, essentially. And it's this kind of like weird scene, right, in which we have this woman who uh, is very like victim blamey, right? Like she's like, she's yeah. the one who basically says like, you know, like, I didn't get raped because I can run really fast. I bet you can't run yeah. as fast as I can. <laughs> Yeah, she's only in, like, one scene, but even though, like, she does say, like, those really abhorrent things, like, she definitely was so fascinating to read about for, like, the few pages that she's in the book. (laughs) And she is this figure who, like, exudes power, and, like, I will say, like, the actual, like, real person is, like, really interesting in that, like, like, Henry's claim to be King of England is not from his father, it is entirely from his mother. Mm -hmm. His father is, like, the Count of Anjou, which is, like, fine, but, like... (laughs) His actual, like, royal title, like, that entirely essentially comes from his mother. And the only reason his mother was not Queen of England is, like, essentially that she was a woman. Yeah. Or at least, like, like which is not a legal thing. And, like, she was actually, like, the person pretty clearly, I would say. Uh, she had, like, a brother who had died. And after that, it was pretty clear that, like, she was the person that her father would, you know, sort of had in mind as the person who would then probably become the, you know, next ruler if she were a man in that same position, like she absolutely would have been the next ruler of England. And uh, the fact that she was not a man is very much like behind the like discontent with her Mm -hmm. um, as a potential ruler. But yeah, she's like, she's actually known, she's known as the Empress Matilda sometimes because her, uh, her first husband (laughs) was, uh, was a Holy Roman emperor. (laughs) And yeah, and she just like she seems like she seems like this like just very formidable figure, and I think that really came out in this like brief scene that we have with her. Yeah, and the book also I would say like kind of like references but gives relatively little detail about a number of historical events, mostly in terms of. I think it actually works kind of well is that because Marie has this sort of obsession with Eleanor, she kind of follows political events insofar as they are related to Eleanor and her family. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And that's kind of how they're framed. But I kind of appreciated that as a way as like, as somebody who knows this period of English history fairly well, I found it useful as a like, here is how I'm like situating myself in time Mm -hmm. is by the fact that like, she's like, oh, I hear that like Eleanor is like getting her sons to rise up against uh, like against their father. And like, now she's imprisoned and like, now she's out and like this one's running things. And now this one's running things. And now we're under interdict. Whoops. (laughs) Yeah, it was definitely an interesting choice because they're so isolated from the mainland that there's all these references to, you know, Marie having like spies everywhere and constantly getting these like letters and updates about like what's going on in the outside Mm -hmm. world, that that was a really interesting way to like move us through time and like situate us in what was happening in the outside world without like, you know, in the space of this novel that's really contained to, you know, what's happening in this one place, this one group of people. So yeah, so I thought this like did a really interesting job of like gesturing at these sort of like, you know, stereotypical kind of like big political events in, you know, late 12th, early 13th century English history without that being the focal point. Mm -hmm. And without it all and like also without it seeming gratuitous. Because every now and then I've noticed that like when I like when they're like, sometimes when there are historical novels that are like about you know, perhaps a kind of more ordinary person or about like a specific small community that there will be these like weirdly gratuitous, like fake seeming conversations that people will have (laughs) about historical events that I'm like, I just simply don't believe that you would, that like any two people in the, like the 14th century have had this conversation. I just simply don't believe it. (laughs) Um, 
And so, like, I thought this was, like, a good way of, like, dealing with that. Yeah, it felt very true to what probably that experience would have yeah. been of living through these events and, yeah. you know, hearing about them, you know, however slowly from the outside world. Yeah. One of the other things I thought the book did well is a lot of the frequent references to illness and disability. Mm-hmm. And disability in particular, because so uh, so I was looking actually at a, at a review that a medievalist colleague of mine, Lucy Barnhouse, did, which is, uh, I would say, kind of more, a little bit more overall critical than I probably am about the book as a whole, although I don't mm-hmm. disagree with her points. But she made the point, right, that disability is something that's not only something that's present in the Middle Ages in general, that should probably be represented more frequently than it tends to be, but that it's something that possibly at least was especially prominent in the context of monasteries because Mm -hmm. it's essentially disability is something that is kind of more livable in the context of a monastery versus like performing agricultural labor. Yeah. And it's also something that wouldn't like, because there's this kind of like communal environment of caregiving, it's also something that I think wouldn't like, carry quite the same stigma, especially if you're talking at like an older person who has something like dementia or something like that, that I think it would Mm -hmm. be, it's like very different when that kind of thing happens in the context of like, you know, like a royal court. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was, I thought that was really interesting. And I thought that was, uh, was overall really well done. Yeah, it was nice sort of seeing a, a text that, you know, had a lot of depictions of caring for these women that, you know, either, like you said, they're dealing with dementia, there's, you know, references to, you know, several nuns that are definitely neurodivergent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was like, it's something we still really don't get a lot of reference, you know, and representation of today. So it was definitely interesting to see it presented that way from a historical perspective, especially because I know that there are so many other, you know, medieval novels that have these characters, Mm -hmm. you know, meeting horrible ends or just serving like a plot purpose that, you know, makes them more of just like a contrivance than like an actual person. Whereas here I felt that like all of these people were like well represented and, you know, really like vivid in, even if this novel, like I said, has no dialogue as such. Yeah, and I really like that there's like this like this like neurodivergent nun who they just like have uh, um have like illuminating manuscripts and yeah. like painting things. And yeah, it's just that like, was yeah, awesome. no. Yeah, I thought that like, that was so cool. And it's also just like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's as good an explanation of any about like why some like medieval illuminations are like really weird. Like yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I thought that was really cool. I also just think the book does a good job with food. <laughs> It makes distinctions between what you're able to eat on different days and times of the year and also brings up, I think, this kind of interesting, again, like internal debate in the context of monastic life about basically uh, how much self-denial you should have. Mm -hmm. And we know like that there are some monasteries that like are pretty strict and some that aren't. The two quotes that I particularly loved is that there's a point where it says Marie thinks truly she does not believe she could live here in this bitter, sodden place without at least the consolation of bacon. And I was like, yeah, I understand that. Me too, girl. Me too. (laughs) And and then towards the end of the book, there's um, 
there's a moment where they have this cow in the stables that's been separated from its calf and is, you know, calling for the calf and, like, all these nuns are, like, aggrieved that this had to happen and, um, Goda, the nun that pr- primarily takes care of the livestock, is, like, saying, like, look, like, this has to happen, like, unless you don't want, like, your milk and butter. And said Marie went silent because she loved her milk and butter and because she felt personally aggrieved that milk and butter seemed well worth the beast's suffering. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, <laughs> and I was like, that's horrible, but also, like, I kind of understand. <laughs> also kind of true. And, I mean, and also interesting, right, And in that, like, it highlights the fact in a way that I think is kind of well done that, like, we have in, like, 21st century society, especially for those of us who, like, live in, like, urban or suburban settings, we're able to be, like, very divorced from the suffering yeah. that is inherent in, like, all consumption of like meat and animal byproducts. Mm-hmm. I say as like an ex vegetarian who decided yeah. that like I could not live without the consolation of bacon. Um, <laughs> but that, you know, like that you don't have quite that same luxury in mm-hmm. the medieval world for the most part, right? Like that you, if you're, if you're going to have the milk and butter, you have to, to some extent, like have this experience of the suffering of the mother cow. Yeah. There's also an excellent description of uh, one of these like elaborate meals that is created for display. It's like Marie is kind of having this like memory or like sort of imagination of uh, what life was like at court and uh, what that looks like. And has this uh, this like detailed description that she says uh, on the table is a roasted swan with its neck twisted back, mud in heaps of soft white bread, a wheel of cheese, figgy pork pies, ale and wine at intervals, and the great surprise, a gift for delight, a cockatrice made of a boar's head greened in a parsley bake and a roasted peacock's body, tail feathers sewn back on and rags in its mouth soaked in camphor and aqua vitae set alight so that the monster is breathing green fire. Uh, the noise, the brightness, the colors, the warmth. And, like, this is absolutely the kind of thing that, like, you would have that for a very fancy dinner in, like, a court setting. Yeah. That, like, sounds, like, wacky. But I feel like it's just, like, one of those things that, like, I kind of love that it's actually incorporated. Especially because I'm so used to the just, like, ah, yes, it is the Middle Ages. Here is a turkey leg. Yeah. <laughs> that I will eat with no fork. Um <laughs> And so I'm always, like, happy when, like, the weird, elaborate food that people did just because they were like, this looks awesome. Uh, (laughs) I'm always glad when we get to have, like, that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, so I thought that was fun. I have a very mixed array of feelings about religion and mysticism Mm -hmm. in this book. As already said, I don't love the, like, starting out as just, like, a cute little atheist, because that's how we make people relatable in the Middle Ages. And I don't, I also don't love that there are kind of these, these elements that appear here and there that are very, like, religion is the opiate of the masses. Yeah. There's um a particular quote I noted in the beginning where it says, uh, for it is a deep and human truth that most souls upon the earth are not at ease until they find themselves safe in the hands of a force far greater than themselves. So like, it definitely does like, you know, sort of promote that view of like, Oh, like they're just going along with it. Like, because they want something to believe in, like in a way that's kind of like a little too modern of a perspective, I would feel. 
Yeah, and and with the exception of, like, Marie, who has this kind of, like, Marie gets to have, I would say, this kind of complicated relationship to Faith, um, although she also mm-hmm. describes it as kind of, like, growing on her like a mold. Yeah, um, that's, I, I noticed too that, too. I feel about that. <laughs> um, but that, like, she has this sort of complicated relationship, but otherwise it seems like everybody is either too smart for religion to matter much, or religion makes them, like, not very intelligent or not very imaginative. Yeah. Or they are using religion but are hypocritical. Yeah, because we're so in Marie's head, we don't really get the sense that the others have this same, like, nuanced relationship to religion. And it's like, and it's like, on the one hand, I get it because this novel is limited to her perspective. But on the other hand, like, when you're going to write a book about this community of nuns like it's almost not really fair to like not give the rest of them that same relationship to their faith yeah especially with like faith being something that like not that there aren't other like aspects of life but that like faith is pretty crucial in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. to uh to the lived experience of being a nun and so yeah like having having more of a sense like of p of other people having that kind of complexity or even like her having having more of those kinds of conversations even with other people, Mm -hmm. I think could have been interesting. So that Marie, right, is kind of made into this mystic and then the explanation for like, why is it that we don't have these mystical texts that are written by Marie de France is because Tilda burns the manuscript with her visions. So on the one hand, okay, the novel feels very invested in Marie's mysticism being exceptional and weird. Mm-hmm. The problem is that I don't think it is, which on the yeah. one hand makes her mysticism more realistic, but on the other hand makes people's reaction to her mysticism less realistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for example, there are, there are details of her visions, which are not that dissimilar to those of Hildegard von Bingen. And so like, who is like this, who is basically her like older contemporary. Uh, she died in 1179. In fact, I think there's like a couple of details here and there, even which I think are like taken overtly from Hildegard. And like mm-hmm. Hildegard is a doctor of the church. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like she's a pretty big deal. And so the idea that like everything she has to say is sort of like weird or inappropriate in some way feels sort of, you know, feels sort of odd. Yeah. Then there's also the, like, that we have this kind of discussion of the relationship between Eve and Mary, and Eve is the original mother, and then Mary as, like, the, like, there's, like, Matrix and Salvatrix, and that's where the title of the book actually comes from, which... I will also say I would not in the year 2021 have named a novel Matrix, given that (laughs) everybody knows that the first thing people associate Matrix with is like the movie with Keanu Reeves. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Like that is not a choice that I would have made. Um, And I think I actually like forgot on like when I was rereading it, I was like, why is it called that? And then like, and then like, as I was reading that part, I'm like, oh, that's where the name of the book comes from. But yeah, so this like vision, right? I mean, so the what's kind of claimed to be sort of remarkable about it is that like it's like all about like Eve and Mary and like where's Jesus? And it's like, well, yeah, but like first of all, like intense devotion focused heavily on Mary is also not weird. It's yeah. like there's even 
like there's an immense amount of uh, like texts and images that are centered on kind of devotion to the Virgin Mary that are like very invested in like Mary as like goddess figure. Mm-hmm. Some of those get deemed problematic. Like there's this uh, this like genre of sculpture, which I think is amazing, called the the Vierge Ouvrante, the Opening Virgin. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like Mary, a statue of Mary, and she opens up, and she's pregnant uh, not just with Jesus, but the entire Holy Trinity. Oh, that's so cool! It's so cool, and so like those eventually somebody is like, that's that's too much, mm-hmm. but. <laughs> But then images like like the coronation of the Virgin, which like represent like Mary as Queen of Heaven, and where like she's often being like crowned by Jesus, but she's like in a lot of the ways like the way they're represented, she's like presented essentially as like the like equal and like co ruler in heaven mm-hmm. with Jesus, who was kind of functioning as her like husband slash son in weird ways. <laughs> like that's fine. Yeah. And this like connection between Eve and Mary, and like Mary as the new Eve. That's also like normal, like that's standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even like there's other stuff that's arguably like that you might like one might even like assume is more subversive that is also like not considered to be heretical or inappropriate. Like there's all of this imagery in texts written by both men and women that use this very feminized imagery around Christ and like depict like Christ as a mother figure. Mm-hmm. And so there's also this like really interesting like gender fluidity, which one could even like like people might assume would be something that like oh obviously like that wouldn't fly but like that's that is okay yeah and so i i find it a little sad that the book does i think kind of lose the ways in which medieval spirituality is like weird (laughs) by implying that like well like it can be for this one person but like obviously everybody would recognize that her visions are like heretical and inappropriate and so like they and so like that's why they got burned when it's like well there's like all sorts of wild stuff that like yeah is out there (laughs) not just this this one person (laughs) yeah yeah uh and that like was not like and that was not necessarily like heretical or problematic which then also i think kind of undermines this passage where it's like how would the world be different and i'm like well yeah. i mean i don't know how is this that different from like hildegard's visions like, yeah, we have like this we... like powerful woman who is like writing like poetry and who is writing mystical texts and who's writing medical texts and like that unfortunately did not get rid of patriarchy yeah i like i have to wonder like how much of it was a conscious choice you know, to sort of, you know, make that and present it that way and how much of it is maybe, like, maybe the research, like, wasn't as thorough as it could have been. Like, it's one right. of those things where it's like, yeah, it's like, how much did you really look into this? Like, did you choose to present it this way or did you just, like, not know necessarily? <laughs> yeah, and that's what's so weird is that I struggle actually to figure that out, I guess, because some of it, the connections are so specific that she must have... Like, that I, she clearly didn't make them up. Like, the yeah. even Mary stuff, like, there's enough of that that is, like, things you can read in actual medieval texts, mm-hmm. essentially. That, like, she clearly did not, like, it, it seems unlikely to me that she could have hit on that by accident. Yeah. As opposed to through research. And so that, to me, means she must know that that's not that weird. 
it's like maybe like Eve and Mary are like a little sexier in Marie's <laughs> version than they usually than like Mary at least usually gets to be. Although Eve often is sexy. Like I was just actually doing this with students in my women in the Bible class. And there's like these great images. There's like this great image where it's like the two of them in front of a tree. And Mary's got this like, you know, like neck to ankle like garment which is like completely shapeless and then eve is just like partying naked next to her (laughs) it's like yeah mary mary is a new eve i feel like that's one of those like tag yourself images that needs to float around on social media yes (laughs) which one are you yes mary eve good week i can be both yep exactly (laughs) And so, like, that stuff, it's like, you didn't get that from nowhere. There's, like, a couple of, like, images here and there, which, like, are very direct parallels to stuff that is in Hildegard's visions Mm -hmm. and ways that I'm like, that's clearly where you pulled this from, which is fine. But then that means, like, you know, this isn't, like, an automatic, like, this person will be dismissed as a heretic. Yeah, I know that this has come up before with other historical novels I'm familiar with, too. Like, there's actually a queer romance that's um, based in, I believe, one of the women being an, an astronomer. And one of the problems that, you know, certain, you know, people that know a lot about the era had with it was, like, to have this fictional character that's a woman astronomer, the author sort of had to, like not reference the existence of an actual like female historical Uh astronomer yeah and they were like it's like a good book but like the fact that you have to like just categorically diminish like a real woman that did these things to prop up a fictional character like becomes a problem like so i feel like this happens a lot in like i think novels about women in particular really and it's like really unfortunate (laughs) yeah and it is sort of this element right that there's so like sometimes you see in like things reflecting on women's history that uh, people will talk about this like approach to including women in like the overall narrative, which is basically uh, add women and stir. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Which is that like you have essentially the same like quote, like master narrative that you've always have, but you like remember to mention Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yeah. (laughs) And when you do that, it's like, we are going, we have picked six exceptional women like, people who are, like, really unique and, uh, you know, and unusual, and we are going to acknowledge that they exist, and therefore we have now, in our history textbook, done a feminism. Yeah. And this isn't exactly that, but it feels a little like that, that in Mm -hmm. implying that, like, your heroine is so incredibly exceptional it does sort of like feed into this idea that like women don't make it into the standard history books because only a very small number of women deserve to. Mm -hmm. As opposed to like, you could actually have like a lot. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, like if you are writing a book about like religion in the middle ages, there are like a lot of women that you actually like should include. Yeah. Yeah. I also wanted to discuss uh, one particular vision that she has, which, like, very much was, uh, like, was kind of a cringe moment for me. Yeah, I've, I when I reached that point in the book, I was like, I have a feeling Sarah's going to have thoughts on this, and I would, like, appreciate hearing them. <laughs> yeah, so, so she has this vision. I'm going to 
read this. She says, in the larger world, she sees the beasts of the apocalypse are roaming, leaving their dark trails smoking and charred on the earth. The fall of Jerusalem, she understands, will make the whole Christian world fall. Christians will be slaughtered and raped and made slaves. Jews throughout the Christian lands will be blamed and caught in their houses and burnt at the stake and murdered without pity. Women and children will be buried alive. So first of all, there's the, when it says the fall of Jerusalem, what it means is Saladin's 1189 conquest of Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. which brings it uh, back to Muslim rule after about a century of rule by Christian crusaders. Associating that with the apocalypse is really problematic. Yeah. (laughs) And feels very, like, lightly Islamophobic in a way that is not necessarily unrealistic for a Christian in the late 12th century, (laughs) but is presented just so uncritically in a novel where so much is nuanced that it bothers me. Mm-hmm. Also, the whole Christian world doesn't fall. <laughs> it doesn't really actually change that much because the fact yeah. that like the Christians ran Jerusalem for a century is like kind of not that important, honestly. <laughs> the Christians will be slaughtered and raped and made slaves is like a whole thing because while there are certainly ways in which like that happens in a context of like any military conquest, like okay, that's also exactly what happened when the Crusader, the Christian Crusaders, took Jerusalem in the late 11th century mm-hmm. is that that's exactly what happened to, well, Muslims and like non-Catholic Christians and Jews who lived in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. It is also the case that like, you know, before we get into how uh, concerned Marie de France apparently is about Jews, that I will add that like Jews were like banned under Christian rule from living in the city of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. They were allowed to under Muslim rule. <laughs> So, you know, some interesting things there. And then the, like, Jews will be blamed and caught in their houses. So it's very much like, first of all, I'm like, do you, do you care about the Jews? Because I kind of don't <laughs> believe you care about the Jews. Yeah. A. B. Jews being blamed for things and murdered in England specifically <laughs> is not <laughs> new to this particular context arguably, I don't know, maybe if she's talking about, like, in particular, like, the the riots that happen in the context of uh, Richard I's coronation and shortly after, but, like, the York riots, like, that's something that, like, is, like, very probably economically motivated in terms of how it's described with, like, probably, like, a sprinkling of, like, we think the Jews killed Jesus and we hate them, mm-hmm. but also a lot of, like, we owe the Jews money and are not happy about that. Mm-hmm. And also that, like, I was I was just in England for a conference at the time of recording, and mm-hmm. I ended up on what ended up being a, like, ritual murder tour of England. Um, <laughs> in that, like, I went to uh, the sites of, like, two of the, like, like, probably, like, the, like, two, like, two of the most famous, like, ritual murder accusations, right, where Jews are accused of... Uh, murdering Christian children, boys specifically, Mm -hmm. to reenact the murder of Jesus, as the story goes, and in Mm -hmm. some cases to then use their blood for ritual purposes. Mm -hmm. That's, the first of those is uh, well before 
I mean, you know, yeah. 40, 40, 40 years before, 45 years before the, uh, you know, the fall of Jerusalem. So, like, the idea that we're, and, and also, like, Jews are massacred by, like, Christians on the, like, en route to go conquer Jerusalem, like, Jews are massacred in the Rhineland. So, like, mm-hmm. the idea that we're apparently, like, blaming the fall of, like, blaming the Muslim conquest of Jerusalem for Christian anti-Judaism mm-hmm. is, like, extremely problematic. Yeah. So this is, like, the one time where, you know, I'm like, you know, maybe it would have been better to just not mention the Jews. <laughs> Usually I'm like, why aren't you acknowledging the Jews? And I'm like, you know, I buy that this nun does not have a lot of interaction with Jews. And I would have been fine if they just simply were not mentioned. <laughs> yeah, as somebody who's had some experiences like that in the last year with, like, people that have clearly never met Jewish people in their lives. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I can agree with that. <laughs> Yep, I'm like, no, maybe maybe just don't. Maybe we're good, actually. <laughs> Some people just don't need to speak on this. <laughs> yeah, so so that was uh, was a kind of element of her visions where I'm like, you know, maybe we just could have done without that one. <laughs> and I will last note before kind of moving on to the Historia at Veritas, the one other kind of areas where I was sort of very grumpy and that had to do with some, uh, some gender-related stuff that... According to the text, it is women are and like women and nuns are like not supposed to privately read. Women are not supposed to be writing, creating manuscripts, illuminating manuscripts. That is just simply wrong. Yeah. Like there are multiple women's (laughs) monasteries that have scriptoria like for exactly the purpose here. Like again, like this is not like they're presenting this as like exceptional and weird. And what will people think? No, it's this is they did this they just did this <laughs> this isn't strange <laughs> and relatedly that there's all of this like nuns are automatically associated with witchcraft and like yeah. once again as i've said five million times on this podcast <laughs> like the height of witch persecution is like the 16th century <laughs> not the 12th yeah and people do not popularly associate nuns with witchcraft. People actually have a lot of respect for nuns. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, to, and to the extent that they don't, it's not because they think they're witches. It's because they um, doubt the chastity of women in some nunneries, which mm-hmm. like is probably sometimes accurate and is also probably accurate for a lot of like priests and monks that like, <laughs> you know, so there's like that aspect of things that like people... People are not that, like, worried about, like, people are not worried about nuns reading and writing. Yeah. Like, they think that's just fine. (laughs) And they are not worried that they are all a bunch of witches. Yeah. That, to me, felt very much like it was, like, potentially actually was a kind of failure of research. Mm -hmm. And a kind of assumption that things that these must have been the gender dynamics. Yeah. In the Middle Ages. It definitely, like, seems like the sort of thing someone would kind of, like, make up if they were trying to, like, justify, mm-hmm. like, what they, like, think they want to present. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, like, I, I just kept reading those things and I was like, I feel like this book is better than that. Yeah. And, like, I feel like this, like, I feel like I would have been so much happier if it had just kind of, like, not had those lines and I don't think it needs them. Mm-hmm. Like, it could just have, like, I'm, we didn't have a scriptorium before, now we have a scriptorium, isn't that great? 
And it's almost like when you're making the point, like, oh, like, if these visions had survived, like, we could have had, like, a different world where, like, women had more of a role. It's like, why are you presenting it as uncommon that women had these roles when, like, yeah. it almost would further your point more to be like, yeah, like, women had this role and it was awesome. <laughs> and to me, it almost seems like it's this sort of, uh, I mean, well, there, there's this kind of common, I would say, kind of trope problem that there's a sort of need to present the distant past as having been fundamentally worse for women in particular than the present. And so part of it is that there's like, there's an, there's ways in which there's like an investment in that idea that I think in a lot of films that I've seen feels very misogynistic. There's also like ways in which that can be like a sort of feminist, like, you know, like a lost past, like we must have mm-hmm. the, like we must, if like we would not have patriarchy unless things were like just unequivocally awful for most of human history. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in reality, it's like, well, so there's uh so there's a scholar, Judith Bennett, who I'm going to say something else about actually in a moment. So this is a great lead in that I made by accident. <laughs> who has this, um this concept that she talks about called a uh, patriarchal equilibrium, mm-hmm. which essentially boils down to, the patriarchal system in the kind of broad strokes is sort of a constant in the way in for like much of history, but like the ways in which it is manifested are different. And that's what's interesting. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I think is interesting is that like, we have all these assumptions that like, because in like that, because there are these like other moments in which like, there's like, a rejection of women as intellectuals that therefore that must have like always been true. Yeah. Whereas like, it's not necessarily exactly always true. Mm -hmm. And that like having an overall patriarchal system can coexist with the fact that we are making this assumption that like, it is useful to have nunneries and that in the context of nunneries, women have power. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that we don't have patriarchy that some women have power. Yeah. Historia et Veritas. But that is a good lead in to the Historia et Veritas, which is where I wanted to talk about lesbian nuns. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason this is a good lead in is because I actually wanted to start uh, by talking about another term that uh, this historian Judith Bennett uses, uh, which is lesbian like. One of the challenges of studying queer people in general in the Middle Ages and queer women in particular mm-hmm. is one of sources because of the yeah. nature of like queer sex in general and especially queer sex involving women. There aren't a lot of sources that are really like clear and explicitly and overtly like these are two women and they are in a romantic and sexual relationship. Yes. <laughs> like we don't have a lot of that. And one of the thing, the moves that some scholars make is to talk about lesbian-like relationships with the idea that we don't necessarily need to have, like, concrete proof that, like, yeah. these people have, like, that, like, this particular kind of sexual interaction is happening to think about, mm-hmm. like, the creation of queer spaces. And in particular, right, to think about, like, monasteries in the, like, as these kind of single sex spaces as potentially, like, a creation of a queer space, Mm -hmm. even if we don't, like, in any particular monastery necessarily have, like, direct evidence for exactly what's happening. 
Yeah, it's um a lot of my English classes when I was in college spoke very frequently about like homosocial behavior, especially on the mm-hmm. part of men, and like how there we didn't really have a concept of homosexuality as such, but there was a distinction between like homosexual acts and like your identity, like your sexual identity. So like mm-hmm. it sort of, you know, sort of speaks to that same sort of like dichotomy that like it doesn't necessarily need to be like overtly queer for there to be like a queer reading to it. Yeah. I there, there's an I forget if it's a medieval piece of history, but there's a thing that goes around of an image of like an an engraving or an image that was found and it's like two women in bed and the caption yes. by the historians are like, oh, it's unclear what the two women were doing like in bed and it's like, is were they it roommates? And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's and like that's early modern, I think. But yeah, but you yeah. know, but but close. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and so yeah, you know, there's there's a whole lot of that. Of, like, refusing, right, to have, like, queer readings of things that have, like, very clear queer implications. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I will say that I think is interesting is that actually, especially in some ways when we're talking about these, uh, these monastic atmospheres, that there are ways in which we can actually kind of, like, go beyond, like, lesbian-like and talk about, like, things that are probably pointing to queer relationships between women. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'd like to recommend for anybody who'd like to know more about this, there's a really interesting article by uh, Jacqueline Murray called uh, Twice Marginal and Twice Invisible Lesbians in the Middle Ages, which is uh, the main place that I kind of pulled some like specific quotes from for this. Mm-hmm. First of all, that we have penitentials that actually do not a lot. I would say uh, it's they that more often we have references to... So basically penitentials are lists of sin and the punishment for them. <laughs> More or less, there's a lot about sexual sins. Mm -hmm. Male homosexuality appears more often, but there are some examples uh, where sex between women is something that is mentioned as something that, like, you shouldn't do and you get punished for it. Mm -hmm. The penitential of Theodore, for example, uh, has a, if a woman practices vice with a woman, she shall do penance for three years and the same period of time if she practices solitary vice, a.k.a. (laughs) masturbation. (laughs) <laughs> we also have some interesting implications as so we have a, a 7th century rule for nuns that first of all has uh some of these uh these kind of references about like concerns about like special relationships that say none that none of none none nuns none of the nuns <laughs> take the hand of another or call one another little girl it is forbidden lest any take the hand of another for delight or stand or walk around or sit together she who does so will be improved with 12 blows and any who is called little girl or who call one another little girl 40 blows if they so transgress i could have read little girl as being like calling somebody like baby yeah <laughs> It's a kind of, like, term of endearment, which is associated with, like, romantic relationships mm-hmm. and the, like, holding hands, like, standing and walking around. To, like, like it seems like they're sort of, like, expressing concern mm-hmm. about this possibility of, like, queer relationships between women and saying, like, you shouldn't do that. But there's the, like, if you're saying they shouldn't do that, you're aware that probably some people are doing that. Yeah, there's, um, it's, it's, I was so glad to see when you sent me the notes that you did have like specific examples of ways that this had come up, because I really wasn't sure, because there is sort of this like, 
histor this history of sort of just denying that like queer sexuality between women even exists yes like i know that it's very common in like i believe in the victorian era it was basically felt that like yeah we're just not going to say anything about this because if we do like they would think about doing it like and and in britain with the wolfenden report which is what eventually decriminalized homosexual activity between men as long as they were consenting adults like women like, it wasn't technically illegal for women to be homosexual in England, like, just because it just didn't get mentioned in the right. law. Like, right, right. they just, like, didn't think <laughs> Like, to, they, like, like, forgot. Yeah, like, they didn't, like, want to mention it in any way, because they're like, yeah, if we just, like, don't say anything, they won't do it. So it's, like, right. it's so interesting to sort of see that, like, this was in, like, you know, different texts as far back as, you know, this century. Because yeah. it's, like, I know that, like, in the future, it just doesn't get mentioned at all. <laughs> yeah, and it's, like, they're, like, they don't want to encourage it there's also i feel like some amount of just like men being really confused about how sex could happen without a penis involved (laughs) so like i guess that's not a thing right Uh, because i think there are even like like 18th and 19th century texts that are like well i guess how it happens is that some women have like a really large clitoris which is basically like a little (laughs) penis and you you must have that that must be how it works (laughs) uh there's also in uh, that same rule, there's uh, some very detailed instructions about how nuns should sleep, <laughs> which includes emphasizing that they should sleep in a separate bed. They should all like sleep, however, in one place. <laughs> and there's actually similar rules for men. And I actually would bet that that absolutely is like about but preventing them from having sex with each other and preventing them from sneaking out and having sex with other people. Yeah. And then as that they should sleep clothed, their girdles bound, and always ready for divine service with all gravity and modesty. <laughs> so which also, you know, is is like somewhat ambiguous, but seems again like potentially they're like, we don't want anybody getting any ideas yeah. in the night. <laughs> we also, well, our friend Hildegard, who we've mentioned before, despite the fact that there are some like slightly suggestive letters between uh, her and uh, some other nuns. She does, however, say quite clearly that, uh, you know, she actually does quite clearly talk negatively about sex between women, uh, saying any woman who takes up devilish ways and plays a male role in copulating with another, or sorry, coupling with another woman is most vile in my sight. And so is she who subjects herself to such a one in this evil deed. For they should have been ashamed of their passion, and instead they impudently usurped a right that was not theirs. And having put themselves into alien ways, they are to be transformed and contemptible. <laughs> so she's kind of expressing like the, the divine as like saying this about women. So, you know, not, not very nice. But again, it certainly recognizes that like people are aware that this is something that is happening. Yeah. Right. So again, like we we cannot imagine a way sex between women. Mm-hmm. I think I'll go ahead and end with uh, with some like nicer, however, <laughs> versions <laughs> of that, which is that we do have letters that read very much like love letters between nuns from the 12th century. So, you know, as like I, I actually even wonder if some of these might have been like these are published. I wonder if some of these could even have been inspirations. Yeah. For this book. 
So one is uh, to see sweeter than honey or honeycomb be sends all the love there is to her love. You who are unique and special, why do you make delay so long so far away? Why do you want your only one to die who, as you know, loves you with soul and body, who sighs for you at every hour, at every moment, like a hungry little bird? Since I've had to be without your sweetest presence, I have not wished to hear or see any other human being, but as a turtle dove, having lost its mate, purchased forever on its little dried up branch, so I lament endlessly till I shall enjoy your trust again. I look about and do not find my lover. She does not comfort me, even with a single word. Indeed, when I reflect on the loveliness of your most joyful speech and aspect, I am utterly depressed. For I find nothing now that I could compare with your love, sweet beyond honey and honeycomb, compared with which the brightness of gold and silver is tarnished. What more, in you is all gentleness, all perfection, so my spirit languishes perpetually by your absence. You are devoid of the gall of any faithlessness. You are sweeter than milk and honey. You are peerless among thousands. I love you more than any. You alone are my love and longing. You the sweet cooling of my mind. No joy for me anywhere without you. All that was delightful with you is wearisome and heavy without you. So I truly want to tell you, if I could buy your life for the price of mine, I'd do it instantly. For you are the only woman I have chosen according to my heart. Therefore, I always beseech God that bitter death may not come to me before I enjoy the dearly desired sight of you again. Farewell, have of me all the faith and love there is, except the writing I send and with it my constant mind. That seems like pretty unequivocally a love letter. Yeah. <laughs> Like, there there are more of these. There are other letters that certainly are kind of referencing, you know, romantic or sexual desires that women have for one another. Mm-hmm. And, like, non-nuns, too. Uh, can all, can Non-nuns can also be lesbians. <laughs> uh, that, like, there is, like, one of the relatively few texts we have by, like, a woman troubadour poet is actually addressed, like, is, like, a love poem addressed to another woman. We have like a lot of really interesting things from uh, from the Islamic world, including like both like poetry, which is like love poetry written by a woman about another woman, as well as texts that are basically like erotic manuals that like talk very explicitly about like sex between women. So the idea that like people like while there are significantly as I like fewer sources talking overtly about sex between women than either things talking about sex between men or heterosexual sex, mm-hmm. they are not entirely absent or invisible. Um, yeah. That we can like very clearly say like the you know we could not necessarily say that you know lesbian is an identity category mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages in the way that it is now, but we can certainly say that like it seems very clear that there are like cis women who are having sex with each other and who have Definitely. romantic feelings for each other. Yeah, proof. Lesbian nuns. Fabula Nostra. So with that, I think we can do the uh, the Fabula Nostra, where we talk about a uh, film or show inspired by this one. Um, I kind of struggled with this, to be honest. Uh, Tracy, what were you thinking? Yeah, I particularly loved the character of Wolfhild, who was the one that got to be the bailiff and, you know, have this, like power Mm -hmm. in the community and sort of being like a female enforcer of like the will of the abbey and i just thought that concept was so fascinating and it's like if i had to like pick something like a branch of this to sort of you know become its own thing i would be so interested in seeing you know 
because this is set so much within the abbey and you know the the residents of that space like i would sort of love to see like what it would be like for her to move in the mm-hmm. world and have to interact with these people especially because we get that sense of you know resentment and threat from the outside but there's only a few scenes yeah. where this is dealt with so i would really love to sort of see a story where someone from this insular community is moving in the outside world and you know the conflicts that you face being a woman trying to enact this like very mm-hmm. male power I think that, like, I can't really think of many stories where that is something that, you know, has been portrayed before, so I would find that really interesting if someone sort of, like, took up that mantle and, like, made a story out of it. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting. I sort of ended up going, like, a weird different direction, which is that I was sort of actually then, like, going back and thinking about Marie de France's work. So in particular, there's this story that she has in her lays, which I, like is actually, I think, kind of low-key misogynist, ironically enough, (laughs) but which I kind of adore because it's, like, so weird. Mm -hmm. Because basically it is about a baron who was a werewolf. (laughs) So, like, every week he, like, vanishes. So he's, like, instead of, like, the full moon thing, it's, like, every week he disappears for three days and nobody knows, like, what Mm -hmm. his deal is. And his wife is, like, what is your deal? (laughs) And so then he's, like, well, I'm a werewolf and I need to, like, hide my clothing while I'm werewolfing and, like, my clothing needs to be there so that I can return to human form. And she's, like... Mm -hmm. Eh? (laughs) with this whole situation and then like she and her lover like steal her husband's clothing so he can't return to human form i was going to say i wondered if that was where that came from because i had heard of that trope before and i had never really been sure like if this was like one of the like where that started so that's really interesting to hear that she may have like sort of helped like originate that yeah and i i don't i have to i'd have to look up i know that it's like based on a story that already was existing but i don't know how many of the details like i don't know what of the Mm -hmm. details are like different in her version versus earlier versions the wolf then like i don't know like eventually like sees the king and like runs up and like starts like licking him and he's like this wolf (laughs) is great and like takes this wolf home um (laughs) and then like meanwhile he like meets like his wife and his wife's lover that he's now married that she's now like marrying or like has married i guess and he like attacks this knight and because like the king's like this wolf is my bestie and i love him they're like you must have done something to this wolf cuz otherwise this wolf would not attack you and that's like you're a dick <laughs> and then he attacks his ex-wife and tears off her nose oh no and so then like basically and so then basically after this like it all comes out and bisclavre gets his clothing back and gets to be a person <laughs> And he and the king, like, have a lot of, like, hugs and embraces. <laughs> Speaking of, like, homosocial connections. Yes. <laughs> he gets all of his stuff back. The, like, his wife gets kicked, gets exiled. And then there's also the added detail that afterwards, in subsequent generations, uh, many of the wife's, pro- like, female progeny specifically are born without noses. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um... <laughs> So wild story, and I think it would be interesting to explore it, and I think it would be interesting to, like, challenge some of the misogynistic overtones that I think, unfortunately, the story does have, um, which also is, like, you know, we have Marie's in the story as kind of, like, a feminist hero, and honestly, I think if you read Marie's lays, I'm not sure Marie's such a feminist hero, unfortunately. (laughs) This in particular, (laughs) with, like, Miss Noseless. (laughs) 
Like, I think it could be interesting to have, like, a somewhat, like, a version that has a somewhat more sympathetic read to her. Like, you know, it's also maybe not totally unreasonable for her to, like, not be super into, like, being married to a werewolf. Like, I don't think that's that weird. Yeah. Especially given that it's somebody who probably did not, you know, lied to her about being a werewolf. Yeah, based on the setting that you described, I'm like, there seems to be, like, that could be an awesome polycule. And yeah. that would be my yeah. my modern interpretation. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And you know what? Like, he, he seems much more into the king than he does into his wife. <laughs> like, you know, I, I think this has potential for, like, playing with this adaptation. And yeah. werewolves. Werewolves are still sort of in right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> and also, in general, I just, like, I want more weird medieval. Mm-hmm. That that uh, that I think is like as I said one of the kind of downsides is that this novel is presenting all of the weird medieval things as being exceptional when they're actually not mm-hmm. they're just like the Middle Ages was actually just weird, <laughs> um, <laughs> like wacky illuminations where people's faces are blue like yeah fine like we've got a ton of those um, <laughs> like this woman where like it's like yeah like she has these like fine weird visions but like the the weird visions aren't that weird and also like have you read this werewolf story <laughs> that's that's i think what i want there estimatio so now i have the uh, the estimatio rating on a scale of one to five based on whatever purely subjective criteria we see that <laughs> tracy do you want to go first yeah, I I definitely think yeah, like four out of five for me. I think like the the one thing for me that made it like a little hard sometimes was like I said the the lack of dialogue mm-hmm. and it being like almost pure description like definitely makes it like hard for me to hold in my brain. But that's that that's like a me thing. This is that's pretty like common with literary yeah. fiction. But just in general, I I really appreciated what it did. Like we were saying, you know, just you know, telling a story about women that had, you know, almost no Mm -hmm. men and that sort of, you know, addressed a lot of things that are still issues today without, for the most part, because, you know, as we said, there are still points where it registers, but, you know, without being this, like, really grating, like, you know, modern Mm -hmm. feminist in, like, medieval times, like, I felt that it was very, you know, very literary, very intelligent in what it set out to do, and I thought that it did, you know, such a great job dealing with different Mm -hmm. issues and dynamics that were very, like, fascinating to read about, so I, I definitely really enjoyed it and was happy that I read it and liked it as much as I did. Yeah, I, I'm also settling on a four out of five. And I would say like, as as a reading experience, if I were reading this and did not know anything about the Middle Ages, I think it would have been five out of five for me, potentially. Mm-hmm. Like, I really just enjoyed this, like, as a novel, I think it's stunningly written. Um, I mean, you know, it has mm-hmm. that kind of quality that like, it's not it's not necessarily like the easiest read, but I think the writing is beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also really like appreciated this as like a story that centered on a women's community. I appreciated this as like, I really like this as a queer story. That's like not a romance. Yeah. It's something that comes up in a lot of discussion about these things where, you know, there are so many stories that are focused on romance, but you know, it's not the sum of our lives. Yeah. Like it's the, the there's like pushback against this idea, but a lot of people often want like, stories where the main character like just happens to be queer yeah like and this is sort of like one of those stories because like it matters that she is but it's not the focus all of the time right 
And I think that this is like a prime example of a story where like it has a queer leading character and queer relationships, but it's not solely about that. It is more about the sum of her life as a woman in this era. Yeah. And I really, I really liked that because I I don't necessarily want to read like bodice ripper romances. (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) And that in some ways, like her, like her being queer is like even like, it's like, kind of part of who she is but in some ways it's like it kind of comes up more even like it comes up to some extent in these relationships but also to some extent even in just like the ways in which she's like talking frankly about her body Mm -hmm. and about desire and like I yeah I really I really liked that and yeah I feel like I feel like that's something I don't see very often that most of the time I feel like when I come across queer stories it's like we we make sure that we know this person as queer because I have this like great love for somebody of the same gender yeah, and it wasn't sensationalized, yeah. which is, like, sort of my concern. Like, especially, like, with like with it being about nuns, it's, yeah. like, there are a lot of ways that that could have gone in, like, a really unfortunate right. direction. So I think that, like, it was done very well for it being, mm-hmm. like, you know, written by a woman and not written with any sort of, like, yeah. salacious aim. Yeah, like, it's very yeah. matter of fact. Like, there, like, this is, like, this is not a naughty nun book. Um, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, and it would be very easy to, like, go that direction. Like, I do think, like, that for example, I ended up not talking about this much because I talked about it in detail on like the relevant episode. But the uh, the Paul Verhoeven film Benedetta, mm-hmm. which is the real story of a 17th century nun, who at least based on these like, essentially like inquisitorial sources is accused of having a you know, of having this like sexual relationship with another nun. And mm-hmm the film is kind of male gazy and sensationalist in so, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I usually do not have to, I, I'm glad that I could have this book, like read this book that has queer nuns and not have to say the phrase Virgin Mary dildo many times. <laughs> like that's, I, I think that's a good thing. <laughs> uh, like, so yeah. So, you know, just in terms of a lot of the reading experience for me, it would probably be a five out of five. And what takes me out of it are these kinds of bits here and there of like these sort of like faux exceptionalism elements and Mm -hmm. the sort of like, let's just insert these kind of gratuitous comments about with these, like what feel just like these sort of assumptions that people have about gender roles in the middle ages, that if you actually spend time researching gender roles in the middle ages, especially for like women religious doesn't quite pan out. Yeah. So Tracy, thank you so much for joining me for this. I really appreciated getting to have this conversation with you. Yeah, thank you for having me, considering I know that I just like slammed into your DMs. Like, so this book came out. I want to talk about it, please. (laughs) No, but I was like so glad because as I said, I read it like right when it came out and uh, was really like, and was very like glad to have the opportunity to have a like systematic conversation about Mm -hmm. my thoughts and feelings around it. So thank you. Are there places where the listeners can find you on the internet? Um, I can give you my blue sky handle since I think Twitter is kind of a garbage fire right now. That's probably one of the only like consistent places where I see myself in the future. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, what is, uh, what is your blue sky? Have loved H A V E L O V E D. And um, I'm just on there and I'm not super active, but it's definitely like a better place to be than Twitter, I think, right now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Rest in peace, Twitter. (laughs) Or X, X. as we should apparently be calling it. (laughs) God.
<laughs> Although I, I am unfortunately still on it technically, but I'm not very active. And now I get emails that are, uh, that like the notification emails are X parentheses, formerly Twitter, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> That's like the best thing about it right now. So <laughs> if you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast. Right now we are still currently on X. We'll perhaps be looking into <laughs> Blue Sky or other things in the near future. But for now on X, we are Media Evil Pod. <laughs> and join. you can also join our Facebook group where, oddly enough, shockingly, these days Facebook is less of a cesspool. <laughs> so that's exciting. And you can find me... Still on X for now and on Instagram at Sarah Ipschdecker. And if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd also love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Tracy, thank you again. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye.